Well, good morning. Let's come in and find our seats and open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the gift of your word, for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the preeminent one. There is no one above you. You are God of creation. You're the firstborn of creation. You're the firstborn from the dead. The fullness of deity dwells in you. The only one who is fully God and yet at the same time fully man so that you were able to accomplish our salvation. And so we lift our hearts in praise to you this morning. Help us to see you now in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we recap a little bit, what was the problem? Why is Paul writing this letter to the Colossians? Now, I know that we're, shut, we're short people this morning. There's only a few of you brave souls that have come out early today. Um, but that just means you're all going to have to answer the questions. So what was the problem that the Colossian church was facing? Okay, bad doctrine. And in essence, what it was was Christ wasn't enough. That's really the root of it. Christ isn't enough. Now, the Gnostics had the idea that the spirit was good, the material things were evil, and therefore God could not get his hands dirty, so to speak, in creation. And so God uh, was a a makeup of a bunch of smaller parts, and these smaller parts, as they went out, as they emanated from him, they were able to do other things that he could not do, and Jesus was one of these lesser gods who was able to accomplish creation. He's not God himself, and that's really the, the, the telling mark for false religion. False religions don't get Jesus right. They dethrone him. He can't be God. Most of them will admit he existed, and they'll say he was a good teacher, he was a good man, but he's not God. And God's having none of that. And since Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's not having any of that either. And so this section, I don't know if God has a favorite portion of Scripture, since it's all his, but this has got to be one that is near the top. There's probably not another paragraph in Scripture that so exalts the Lord Jesus. And so let's read chapter 1 from verses 15 down through verse 23. And as we read, pay attention to the word, Him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell 
in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Cults want Jesus to be prominent. Now, there's a problem with being prominent. What's that? What's wrong with being prominent? Michael. Okay, you have to go down if Christ is foremost. How often do you see in the scripture somebody being described as being one of the prominent men in a town or in a city? Prominent just means you're a bigger fish in a particular pond among others. Among others, you can have a number of prominent men. There are a number of prominent men in Sacramento because that's the seat of government. You can go into just about any organization and you're going to find a number of prominent people. Christ is not prominent. Christ is preeminent. He is above all. He's above all anybody. And it's all for the, for the false religions, for the false teachers. It's all about taking him down from that position. So let's start here. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the icon of God. If God had a face, it would be Christ, except it's not talking about physical appearance, right? We typically think of an icon. An icon is a representative. It's an image of something. Christ is not the physical image of God because God is a, God the Father is a spirit. He has no body. And so it's not dealing with the idea of his physical appearance. He's the icon of God because he, has the, he is the exact representation of God. That's why Jesus was said to Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no difference. He's the, he's the same essence. He's the exact representation. So you find in John 14, 9, Hebrews 1, 3, this idea of Christ being um, the exact, the, the, the manifestation of God. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. Now we see that in verse 19. You will also run into it next, uh, in two weeks, in chapter 2 where it talks about, 2 verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. There's no way around. When you dethrone Christ, who else do you dethrone? You dethrone God the Father as well. And so again, this is why uh, when, when, you, when you fall astray, when you go astray from who Jesus is, it's, you run off the tracks very quickly. 
So he has all the characteristics of God. He's in no way lesser than the Father, yet in humility, he submits to the rule of the Father. Does that make sense? And I know I'm preaching to the choir here. But again, we're all on track, right? Okay. For by him, all things were created. Excuse me, let's back up. I skipped the... (laughs) This is one of these verses. This is one of these words that creates a lot of issues. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, the word firstborn is used in two senses, both of them being true about Christ. So what would be one? Those of us who have multiple children, what do we have amongst our children? Somebody was first. Somebody came out first. And so is Jesus the firstborn of Mary? Absolutely yes. And so in that sense, yes, you can be in order. Now, the word is not usually used in the Bible, just speaking of birth order. What was important in being the firstborn? Pardon me? He's the heir. So it's talking about inheritance. Now, is the firstborn, is the one who comes out first, always the firstborn? No. And in fact, if you know your your, uh, history of Israel, your Jewish history, you would know that very plainly. Who was born first, Jacob or Esau? Esau was. Therefore, the birthright belonged to, belonged to him, right? Yet, who was the firstborn of Jacob? Excuse me, of, of Isaac? It was Jacob. Who was the firstborn of Jacob? Okay, I hear Judah. Ah, you see, here it is. This is interesting because when you talk about Jacob and you talk about the patriarchs, who was the firstborn? Reuben came out of the womb first. Now, we tend to think that that Judah was the firstborn of Jacob. Why? The scepter belongs to him. But who got the double blessing? Joseph. Joseph did. What, where was Joseph in the birth order of the boys? There's 12 of them. He's number 11. And so the idea here, of, in that sense, the firstborn is the one who receives the blessing. He's the one who's going to carry on the Uh, the family enterprise. He's the one who gets the double portion. And so it's not necessarily the one that comes out chronologically first. So you have that sense where it comes to the inheritance. Now there is a third use of this term, and that is the one that's being used here. And that is not he was first born. It is that he existed prior So when you have proto, that can be first or before, and then you have takas, exist. So he existed before. Now, why would that need to be true of Christ? Why would he have to exist before creation? Say it louder, Julie. Because he created If he's a created being, he's not capable of creating. He's not capable of doing that. And so the idea here is that he existed before all creation. 
And you get that in verse 16, for by him all things were created. So he is the one who is bringing, who is fashioning everything that we can see and everything that we cannot see. So not as he, not only is he creating the earth, the mountains, the skies, the heavens, people, animals, flora, fauna. He's creating all of that stuff, but he's also creating all of the orders, all of the social orders, all of the dominions, all of the rulers or those offices of ruling. He's creating all of that as well. And because he is creating all of it, what position does that give him related to all of those things? He's over them. He owns them. He is superior to them because he made them. He made all of them. And so when you talk about thrones, dominions, kingdoms, Rulers, authorities, he's created all of them. Not only did he create them, they were created through him and what? For him. So again, demonstrating that he is superior in every way to any of these things. They've been created for him. It's for his use. It's for his pleasure. There's nothing that's been created that he didn't make. Nothing. And so he is over all of those things. He's before all things, he is superior. He is above. Now, where do angels fall in here? They're created beings. So there was a time before time where angels did not exist. They're created beings, which means... Jesus created who? He created Satan. All of the fallen angels, Jesus created them. And so there's no way, there's nowhere where you have authority or power that somehow even equals Christ. They are all subservient to him, all of them. He is before all things. He's again, it's again, he's in front of, he is superior. The word there is pro. And again, he is in front of. And In him, all things hold together. Now, if you want to have some interesting reading, Google the strong nuclear force. Now, uh, we all had science in school, right? What's at the center of an atom? The nucleus. And what's inside the nucleus? Protons and neutrons. Now, they're saying there's a bunch of smaller subatomic particles in there now. That's where you get quarks and haldons and all kinds of other stuff that they're coming up with. What charge do protons have? They have a positive charge. Now, inside each atom, you're also going to have in rings around the nucleus, what do you have? That's where your electrons are. And electrons have what kind of a charge? They have a negative charge. 
So an electron and a proton, those charges, one is positive, one is negative, to the same degree, so that they would basically cancel each other out, and neutrons have no charge. Now, if you've ever played around with magnets, what happens when you put a bunch of items that have the same charge together? What do they want to do? They want to get away from each other. And so you have these forces, one of which is electromagnetism, which is the idea of like particles repel. And science has a problem. The electrons are on the outside. The protons are on the inside. What holds the protons together? So they came up with something. There's a strong nuclear force. Now, we don't know where it comes from. But there's got to be something in there that's stronger than the electromagnetic force that would cause these particles to separate. Christ holds all things together. If he let loose, what would happen? Everything. The chairs would come apart. We would come apart. My glasses would come apart. Everything. In him, all things hold together. He's also head of the body, the church. So he is firstborn. He existed prior to creation. Therefore, he is over all of creation. He's created everything. And he is also head of of the body, the church. So, in the physical world, he is preeminent. In the spiritual world, he is preeminent. So all of us function under him as the head. And he's the beginning, the firstborn, there's our word again, from the dead. Now, was Jesus the first person to be raised from the dead? No. There were people in the Old Testament who were raised from the dead. Again, what is this getting at? It is the degree he is superior to. So when it comes to the firstborn, uh, uh, when it comes to the dead, Christ is preeminent over all of that too and over all of them. He's the firstborn of the dead. Why? So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus has nothing but first place ribbons on his wall if he had a wall like that. All he has is he is the preeminent one. And why? Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So the idea here is that God is at enmity. He is at war with sinful man, right? When, we have, when the fall occurred, we, all, man died spiritually, began to die physically, and he is dead in his trespasses and sins. And so, and he's not, as Billy Crystal would say, men are not mostly dead, right? They're dead. If you go, some of us, some of the people here in this room are familiar with dead people. You can crack the best one-liners in the history of the English language. And what kind of response will you get from someone who's dead? Nothing. They don't even crack a smile because they are incapable of response. They're dead. You touch them, you get no response. You yell at them, no response. Pick their hand up and drop it, it's going to fall because there's gravity, another one of those four forces, by the way. 
they're dead. They're incapable of response. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And how was that going to be fixed? What was the remedy for being dead in trespasses and sins? You need a sacrifice. Somebody who would be able to satisfy all of God's law. That's Christ. He's the one who satisfied the law that made him an appropriate and an adequate, a sufficient sacrifice. And so when Christ, when Jesus hung on the cross, his blood was sufficient to atone for the sin, for all of sin. It was sufficient for all. What was the other component, by the way? What else did Jesus in his death accomplish? He paid for sin. What else did he do? What does it mean to pay for sin, by the way? Keep going. So you have, when sin incurs debt. The wages of sin is death, exactly. Who's going to pay that? Who's going to satisfy God's wrath towards sin? And so if you go back in the Old Testament, if you look at the different offerings, there was one offering that actually made restitution. Do you remember which one it is? Not the sin. It was the guilt offering. So when you go into Isaiah 53 and it talks about if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he's actually making recompense to God on our behalf. And so his death wasn't only the, you know, the wages of sin is death. Yet at the same time also, he satisfied the wrath of God. So that for those who are redeemed, there is no shoe to drop. There is no suspended sentence. You're familiar with suspended sentences, right? It's where you do something and the judge comes in and says, okay, listen, I'm going to sentence you to prison, but I'm not going to send you there yet. If you stay out of trouble and you keep your nose clean for a prescribed period of time, then you will avoid going to prison. But you mess up and you commit another offense, then not only will you get the, the offense for what the sentence for whatever you knew you did, but you got this other one hanging over your shoulder that you're going to have to satisfy. There's no suspended sentences with God. You're guilty or you're not. You are condemned, or you're not. And so for those who are redeemed, the penalty, the wrath due to them has been satisfied in Christ. And so here you have, and so what is what does a reconciler do? What does it mean to reconcile? Say it out loud, John. I see you doing the hand motions back there. Two things that were formerly together have now been, have been separated, and we are creating the conditions whereby they can be restored together. That's the idea of reconciling. And that's being done through Christ, through the cross. So this morning, when we have communion, what are we celebrating? 
that act that made it to where we could be reconciled to God, to where we could be made to be at peace with God. In fact, that's the next phrase. We've been reconciled. All things have been reconciled. You realize that creation one day is going to be reconciled. Creation is going to be freed from the sentence of death that's on it. And so everything is going to be reconciled to him. He's made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, Paul is normally very inclusive. What's left out, whether of things in heaven or things on earth? Things under the earth are not included. Why not? Okay, so the point, yeah, there's no reconciliation when you've gone there. What is being referred to when they talk about being under the earth? Sheol, the grave. We're not going to say hell yet because hell is as yet what? Unoccupied. Hell's empty. It's going to be empty until the false prophet and the beast get thrown in there first, and then Satan and the, and is the rest of his angels, and then those who are unredeemed men. So we're talking about the grave, Sheol, the pit. Those who are unredeemed end up in Sheol. It's a holding cell. It's a holding place until such time as they're going to face God in judgment. If you end up there, no, there is no hope for you. There's no redemption for the unbelieving dead. There's no redemption for fallen angels. None. It's not even offered. God has no salvation plan for fallen angels. And so here you have Jesus as the, he's the exact representation of God because he is God. He's the creator of everything, not just the visible and the physical world, but all of the spiritual world that goes on with it. He's the Lord of the dead. He's the reconciler between God and fallen men. He is all of those things, and he is preeminent in all of them. There's nothing in there in which somehow he is taking second place. Questions until now? You know, I got to tell you, this week as I was studying through this, Very appropriate to have it in the week of Thanksgiving. How much do we have to be thankful for? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we've been made alive through Christ. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. SEAL Team 6 can rescue. But you know what they can't do? They can't give life. Only God can do that. And only God does that. Verse 21, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, let's just stop there, so again, what's the picture? God is holy. What were we? We were evil. Was there any con was there any communication, any bridge, any link, anything here between us and God? We were alienated. 
So the word cut off, I think, is what you said. Yeah, there's, there's nothing. And there's no way that we can bridge that gap to God. And so we're hopeless. Hostile in mind. So again, thoroughly corrupted. Thoroughly alienated. Not just in what we do, it's in how we think. And so again, no bridge here between the two sides. Yet, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Now, Paul throws in and he throws in a qualifier here. And this again is targeted directly at the people who are pestering the Colossians. Because again, God can't be what? For the, for, the, for the Gnostics and for those who somehow, you know, buying into this idea that uh, spirit's okay, but, but material things, physical things are bad. God can't have flesh. And so again, this idea, um, you know, have you, have you heard some of these? I don't know if you hear these statements at all. You know, Jesus you know, didn't really have a body. He just looked like he had one. Or uh, sometimes you'll run into, well, Jesus didn't die. He just swooned, right? He just, he, he was mostly dead. He looked dead. Why do they do that? Why do, why do people come up with these other explanations? Say again? Yeah, okay, so they're discounting him. Uh, you know, you can't, again, what is the one thing that they do they will, they do not want to acknowledge that he's God, that he's Lord, right? Which is why when you, when you go to Philippians, God has, because Christ humiliated himself and humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross, wherefore God has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, both things on the earth and above the earth and under the earth, there we get all of them, right? And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They're going to get it at some point. They're going to acknowledge it at some point, even as they're suffering the wrath of God for eternity. He's reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so here we, prior, we were alienated. We were hostile in mind. We were wicked in our conduct. And now we have been taken from that and all of a sudden now transformed into where we are holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So that which was formerly polluted and contaminated has now been made utterly perfect. Not even a hint of flaw. This idea of blameless is the idea of without blemish. It's white, 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 white. There's no eggshell, there's no off-white, there's no Navajo, there's none of that. It is straight white. It is straight pure. It is utterly pure. And this idea, too, of um, beyond reproach, You can't even attach 
anything that would somehow make it less than perfect. There's no way in order to be able to make this less than perfect. But there's a caveat, isn't there? Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Now, if you live in Colossae, does that verse give you pause? If you live here, does that verse give you pause? Okay, I see some heads nodding. Why? Go ahead. Your head was nodding. Okay, so the idea that it's something that we're waiting for, that it's still something that being blameless is still out here in the future. Okay, so we're still waiting for the hope. We're still waiting for everything to be revealed in the end. Okay, so going to Philippians 2, the idea of God being at work in us to work in will of his good pleasure, but we are to also work out our salvation. Andrew? Okay, so to recap for the, for the tape, the, um, there's the idea of we have the propensity to fall back into sin. And so is there, again, and so again, now if we're looking at that and we're going, well, if I fall back into this sin, especially if it's one that I just, I really struggle with this particular thing. And the idea there, if um, there's, there's that waiting for, the hammer to fall, right? I keep falling, I keep failing, I keep failing, I keep failing. At some point, doesn't the hammer have to drop? 
which we'll get to that in a minute. Let's keep fleshing here. Okay, let me catch up with you here for a second. So Vitali is, is, is saying that Paul is referring to the faith, that is that body of teaching that is, that is the gospel. And when you start to dilute the gospel, when you start to change the gospel, then you're no longer believing in the faith. Is that, am I capturing that? Okay. John. Okay, and so uh, the, 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 that point is that we all know people who have fallen away, who once claimed to be redeemed, once claimed to be Christians, and now repudiate that. Rick, I'm, hang on one second, Mary. Okay, and so Mary's point is, is that um, if they continue in the faith, then they don't have anything to worry about. They're steadfast, they're, they're firmly planted, there's not an issue. Okay, Rick? Okay, and so this comment is that uh, if the subject is you, if we are responsible for maintaining our salvation, then we have a potential problem, right? Okay? Keep going. So the idea is being deceived by twisted truths. Mm -hmm. Okay, Michael.
Okay. And so Michael's comment is he's going to the book of Hebrews and talking about um, people getting entangled in sexual immorality or uh, using Esau as the example, sexual immorality and the root of bitterness that somehow suck you away. That accurate? Okay, and so this is one who in the past has aligned himself with Christ and is now rejecting Christ. Anybody else? Okay, so being steadfast and, and uh, remaining firm in the face of cultural opposition. So what does it sound like Paul is saying? What's everybody tiptoeing around? Say it again. Yeah. Somehow you can lose your salvation. Now, is that what Paul is saying? All right, and I see people, okay, Richard, you're shaking your head. Why is Paul not saying that? Fair enough. And so uh, Richard is saying, okay, perhaps it's not crystal clear from this text, but there are other texts that deal with this issue as to whether or not one can lose their salvation. So how do we deal with this then? That is a good question, and I don't know the answer to that question right offhand. All right. Okay, so, so here, the point here is that if you're chosen, then Christ has reconciled you, and it's been done by him, not by me, right? Okay. Okay. It is not the only instance where this theme is brought up. In fact,
Okay, so Vitaly is bringing up that this is not the only passage that deals with this issue, and you have a common theme in multiple books that talks about being steadfast, that talks about being um, staying the course, that talks about perseverance. So for instance, when you look at the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, what's in every one of those letters? He who overcomes, right? He who perseveres. He who perseveres to the end. So the idea here, and again, is our salvation dependent upon us? If it is, we're in trouble, right? Yeah, we cannot, we can't save ourselves. So the idea here is that since salvation is accomplished by God, when we are reconciled, that's a one-time thing, right? When we are justified, how often does that happen? Once. What does it mean to be justified? You're declared legally not guilty, right? And we've been declared not guilty by God. And so here again, you've got these things here where um, the danger here for these folks, the same danger, frankly, that should be that we should be aware of. The characteristic, the defining characteristic of a Christian is that they persevere. That's the that uh, that is the evidence of their salvation. Yeah, okay. So the point is, is that, you know, Christ has sent the Holy Spirit and um, he's the one who is behind our perseverance. In fact, if you go to the book of Jude, it talks about how we are kept we're beloved, we're kept, we're guarded, we're protected. So the idea here is that when we, when you're encountering false teaching, getting turned aside, when you feel yourself falling prey, to that kind of error, what's your response? If your response is repudiating the error and holding on to the truth, that is evidence of your salvation. John wrote that they went out from us because they were never of us. And so here again, Keep in mind that there are many, there are many in the church. I hope there's none here this morning who in the day of judgment are going to stand before Christ and be in that group. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Andrew, you had your hand up again. Okay. 
Michael. You're asking me if it's correct? Well, God accomplishes our salvation. It's my, it is my duty to repent. That's as, you know, when I, am confi- when I am confronted with the truth of my spiritual condition and I repent and turn away from being God to bowing my knee before God and believing that God is who he says he is and that um, God is going to do what he says he's going to do, then that is my, the sum of my involvement with my salvation. It was accomplished by him. He chose me before the, before the foundation of the world, and he accomplished all of it. And so he even gives me the faith to believe. And so everything is of him. So here's the thing. And here's what we should be taking away since we're we're running out of time. Does doctrine matter? Yes, it does. Pay mind to what you give allegiance to. Don't be one of the soils that has an initial response to truth and then gets sucked away and somehow turned aside. No, we're not going to lose our salvation. Satan's not strong enough in order to be able to do that. I'm not strong enough to be able to do it. Because believe me, if I could lose my salvation, I would. I'm kept. I'm guarded. And if you're in Christ, so are you. But it's not something to take for granted that doesn't give us license to do whatever it is else that we wish. Does that make sense? Is anybody worried about losing their salvation in here? Okay. Don't be worried about losing your salvation, but don't be presumptuous thinking that somehow, because I did something back here in the past, that that's my get-out-of-jail-free card, and I can live, and I can think, and I can do however I want. That's not evidence of being redeemed. That whole idea about, I have license to do whatever, that's called licentiousness, and in Jude, that's referred to as ungodly multiple times. Does all that make sense? Am I beating a dead horse? Yeah, God changes our want to, changes our chooser. Well, let's pray. We're, we're over now. Lord Jesus, again, you have the preeminence in everything. And what you accomplish, there's no one able to overcome. We're held in your hand and no one's strong enough to take us out of your hand. And then we're held in the Father's hand and no one's able to take us out of his either. And thank you for that, because if it was left up to us, we'd be, we'd be condemned again in a heartbeat. We would be fresh offenders right off the bat. But Father, help us not, cause us not to take that for granted. That we would not take sin lightly. 
that we would not take your truth lightly. We are your image bearers. We can cause praise to be offered to you. We can cause reproach to be claimed against you by how we act, by how we speak. So, Father, help us to be conscious of that. That we would bring you pleasure, that we would please you in all respects. That we would bring no reproach to the name. Help us to worship you aright this morning as we come to our main service now. In Jesus' name, amen.